My name is Tom Abbott from the University of Warwick. The awards season is upon us, and whilst the Oscars and BAFTAs celebrate the art of filmmaking, at its heart films are primarily commercial entities. The way in which films are promoted has not often been a focus for critical academic research. Chris Meir of Warwick's Department of Film and Television Studies is managing the Marketing the Movies conference, which aims to focus on this area. Chris, um, why do you feel it's important for us to study the marketing materials for a film in the same way that we would critically analyse um, the film itself? Well, uh, the way we go about seeing movies is that none of, almost none of us come to a movie without knowing anything about it in the first place. Uh, very few of us, I think, will ever sit down to watch a movie we've never heard of. Uh, and the way that uh, companies go about marketing movies ha- is such that uh, we learn more about a movie going into it now than we ever have before. We see trailers, we see commercials, we hear gossip about what's gone on on set. Uh, we've heard small pitches of the plot, big pitches of the plot. So-and-so gave a good performance, so-and-so didn't. You know, uh, So all these things f- factor into how we see movies. Uh, the second we sit down and it starts, we already have these preconceived ideas. Uh, and it's to the point that uh, you know a lot of us will know a lot about movies that we've never seen. Uh, so if... If you've not seen The Queen, you at least know that Helen Mirren's great in it. Or uh, if you've not seen The Last King of Scotland, you know that Forrest Whitaker transformed himself into Idi Amin, and so on. So uh, a lot of us who don't have time to go to the movies will you know, somehow feel as if we've seen a lot of them because you've seen a trailer or you basically know what it's about, uh, and so on. Um, so with that in mind... Uh, you know, it's it's almost as if the virtual uh, understanding of the film is, you know, uh, precedes and supersedes in some ways the actual understanding of a film. So, uh, whereas film studies for a long time has been, con- and, and rightfully so in some ways, has been concerned with showing how films actually work, what it's not been so good at and is just recently starting to cope with is that is how relative that is, how, how relative our understandings are, and usually... They've been shaped by these kind of extra-textual forces like marketing and promotion primarily. Uh, as you say, it's, it's a business, first of all, so uh, getting your movie known is more important in a way than you know, get it, making a good movie. I suppose it's often easy to think about a movie poster as being a work of art, and mm. there are sort of very famous examples of very striking images that are sort of very artistic in the way they're produced. I mean, Silence of the Lambs poster is a very good example of one mm-hmm. uh, that's considered in that way. But do people think about trailers in the same way well it's interesting uh the one kind of field that or the one aspect of film promotion that's been studied most in recent years uh you know after posters which kind of were picked up in art history quite a bit and uh and studied through that like um, and you know there it goes back to toulouse Trek doing posters for you know theater productions in france you know so there's a precedent for studying posters in a way and so it's been done in other fields but trailers more recently have Bit come under uh, you know there's a, a lot more scrutiny there's uh one of our speakers at the conference actually has kind of been a pioneer in this field he he's written a, 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 a very encyclopedic study of uh, the hollywood trailer and uh, another f- uh book which came out very recently uh is dedicated to the kind of rhetoric of uh, hollywood trailers trailers are so ubiquitous uh, now they're available online they're always been a part of the film going experience uh to the point that a lot of people will go early to see the trailers, myself included. I, I always try to get to the movie in time to see the trailers, and uh, it bothers me when people talk during them. <laughs> um, but um, And another reason for that is because, uh, as film students, we like uh, watching moving images, and, uh, and trailers present very interesting little films, little condensations 
a bigger narrative. Well, I suppose the relationship between a trailer and a movie is a very complicated one because whilst they're both about the same subject matter, one's driven very much by a marketing agenda and the other one's driven by all sorts of different agendas, whether you know whether it's the artistic or uh, you know commercial big blockbuster. But they're they're related, but they're very different, aren't they? Can we actually can we analyze them in the same context, or do we have to deal with them separately? Well, you do have. Well, yes and no. Um, you you have to treat them separately, and you also have to treat them in relation to the film. I think uh, all marketing uh, is a matter of reducing. Uh, you know, for better or for well, usually people would say for worse. Though you know, the, in, invariably when people talk about the trailer, it's oh, it you know didn't really show how the movie was, or you know it played up some element that really wasn't there, or you know sometimes they even include dialogue that isn't actually in the film. So um, you have to kind of separate them in a way to to give them you know to be fair to them. You can't just say well you're not as good as the movie. So <laughs> you know if they were, you would need to see the movie. You'd only see a three minute trailer. So. Uh, but then just to keep saying that it's not as good as the movie or it, it bastardizes the movie is, you know, kind of unfair, you know, then you would, there would be no reason to study trailers. Uh, you know, within the context of film studies, uh, you're always ultimately trying to study the film itself as an object. So, so trailers uh, can be its own object or it can, you know, greatly inform how we understand films. Uh, usually this takes the form of explaining kind of historical context. So, uh, for example, in my own research, I, I'm doing uh, work on Local Hero, and a very complex kind of uh, film, really, uh, but one whose reputation is that of being a very kind of simple, small-town um, romantic vision of Scotland. But uh, And the trailer plays up this image, uh, and it really influenced, I think, the way the film has been seen, even by academics and scholars studying the film. So, in a way, my own research is kind of reclaiming the actual film and comparing it to the trailer, and and showing that it's it's really kind of reducing what's a very complex film into a, a two-minute version, you know, and, and we'd be remiss if we did the same thing, I think, in studying the film itself. Um, but in addition to that, uh, there, there are some caveats with studying trailers that it's uh, not simply... We, we can't uh, view them monolithically. They, they've changed a lot over time. Uh, they have different agendas in different countries. Um, and uh, this is kind of the newest branch of trailer studies, is to to kind of look at how, you know, like that they're not uh, simply one thing. The one you get on the DVD <laughs> won't always be the one that was, uh, you know, shown everywhere and for every audience. So, so um, and that's the real uh, challenge facing a historian when they handle trailers is to not only uh, analyze them on their own terms and in relation to the film, but to also account for, you know, all the different versions that were made and, and why they were, so... I mean, you you raised a couple of interesting issues there around the historical context and the cultural context. How, I mean, let's deal with the historical first. I mean, how has the the approach to marketing movies changed um, over the last hundred hundred plus years? Hmm. Well, um, I would say uh, film studies itself, having begun in the fifties or sixties and only becoming uh, part of an academic institute, uh, part of the academy. Academy, sorry, um, in the 1970s, in any kind of institutionalized form, we're still talking about only really about 30 or 40 years of, of studying films uh, properly in academic contexts, and uh, the tendency at the beginning of film studies was to kind of align the discipline with literature studies and philosophy, and and those kind of contexts, marketing was a very very small part of of how we understood the film. It was a text in the way that you'd analyze Hamlet. You wouldn't, you know, go and find Shakespeare's marketing documents or, or something like that. And, and so why should we in film studies? Uh, and, and this is kind of a larger bias in 
the study of humanistic arts is to see it as an art form and not necessarily as a commercial entity. Uh, you know, there, there's always been resistance to that kind of thinking. Um, but as uh, as the years went by, you know, famous publicity stunts would invariably be kind of a talking point. Uh, so when you gave a lecture on Psycho, you'd kind of mention that for the first time ever, Hitchcock said, show up on time or we're not going to let you into the movie, you know, and that created a lot of press for the film, um, etc. And, uh, you know, so they, they became small anecdotes within, uh, you know, larger, you know, but, but not within larger studies of films, but not still the, the kind of focus. Um, as the as the, the discipline matured and uh, more and more people started looking at historical context, uh, promotion and reception would... Uh, promotion would feature as part of a way of studying the film's reception. So you'd say stuff like uh, when Douglas Sirk's uh, films were out, they weren't advertised as melodramas, they were advertised as sex films, you know, or adult uh, films. And so that would be an interesting way of viewing the film um, and kind of, uh, you know, oh, well, the, you know, that's neat. We hadn't, uh, you know, like that's what people in the 50s thought, how, how novel, <laughs> you know, which, which uh, sounds condescending, but it really wasn't. It was really a kind of a step away from seeing the text as existing, you know, <laughs> in this kind of vacuum. Um, and I think, uh, you know, with throughout the 90s and uh, up to very recently, this has been kind of the role of, uh, of film promotion studies is to kind of inform context. And, you know, rightfully so, but I, I still think a lot of um, those kind of, you know, informing of context goes on in a very limited way, usually in terms of Hollywood films, almost always uh, you don't study the marketing of British films nearly as extensively as uh, you do Hollywood films. But also with kind of this kind of uh, very naive view that since the poster said this, this means this. You know, when, when there's not much uh, information on who made the poster, why they made it, what they were trying to accomplish, you know, what different versions went uh, to different markets. And, uh, you know, the, the kind those kind of things, uh, I think, is still what's lacking. Yeah. But isn't that partly because, I suppose, you look at um, a great film and it's it's the kind of creative work of genius mm-hmm. um, of a Spielberg or a Hitchcock, mm. whereas the promotional materials are often, you know, we often have, I suppose, have this idea that they are sort of marketing committees somewhere beavering, mm-hmm. this group of kind of faceless marketeers beavering away <laughs> to create something that's focus group friendly mm-hmm. um, so is it any wonder perhaps that it hasn't had the kind of same critical assessment that, uh, that the kind of the, the great art has? No, uh, no, it's not a surprise at all and uh, very few people get into film studies or any other, the study of any other art form to kind of illuminate uh, the the skill of uh, marketing people or accountants, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you invariably start out in, uh, in these disciplines because you, you quite like the films and uh, you find them very profound artworks and um, that's, it's well and good and, and we need that kind of enthusiasm on the ground and, and to keep a discipline going really. Um, but it's not all that can be said and uh, you know, the, you know the the tendency to view things in a vacuum like that is is long been viewed as we we kind of collectively say that's unfortunate that that happens that way but not much gets done to change it you know and and so appreciating how things circulated um you know can really kind of redefine how we understand films and uh you know good examples of this uh would be something like uh like Citizen Kane you know long viewed as a masterpiece and and film studies, uh, you know, that redefine the art form in a lot of ways. And, you know, over, you know, 
very recently, relatively about in the last 15 years, people have made a big deal of, of pointing out how much of a failure it was in its own time and, and how to, to, to say it was very influential is to kind of say it's been very, you know, like, well, people weren't watching it when they were making films two years later, you know, it was only, you know, after a long time that people rediscovered the film. So to... Isn't isn't that part of the problem, I suppose, for, for filmmakers mm. that in in the kind of commercially driven world mm. that what becomes a commercial success is derived, you know, is derived by having good marketing rather than a good movie. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, is has marketing become more important than the movie itself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the most uh, recent uh, trends in Hollywood are as what's what called what's called a high concept. Uh, you know, and, and much, this is a kind of very derided um, kind of filmmaking within, you know, um, film criticism, just journalistic and uh, film scholarship, because, you know, it's high concept is, is basically, you know, if you can't explain your movie in one sentence, then it's not going to be bought by a major studio, it's not going to reach audiences, it's not going to have an easy time uh, making itself intelligible to audiences, so... Uh, the, the classic examples of this would be something like um, the more recent one, uh, Snakes on a Plane, you know, the, the title says it all, you know, there are snakes on a plane and we must do something, that's bad, you know, we have to do something about that. So um, this has kind of become the kind of Hollywood standard uh, over, since about the late 1970s and, uh, you know, the the kind of most interesting uh, or the, the most formative works of film promotion studies was... A, a concerned with high concept and how it was changing uh, the films we saw that there was an inevitable kind of dumbing down at least uh, on some level uh, you know of film's appeal was no longer complex but um, I'm of a mind that it never really was in the first place but high concept was finally um, you know something you could find in the minutes of board meetings in Hollywood that you know they, they actually explicitly said unless we can explain it in uh, one sentence we're not gonna make this movie and but when you're pitching a movie, as you've kind of already indicated, I mean, there are very big differences, I suppose, to pitching a movie in the States, as you would do in the UK, as you would do in France. Mm -hmm. How have you drawn out some of the kind of cultural elements? Well, it's uh, this is kind of at the, the cutting edge right now of this, this field, and it's work that really hasn't been done. Um, and that's why I think uh, the, the most kind of exciting thing to come out of this conference is we'll have papers about uh, addressing the UK, the audience in the UK, uh, through promotion and reception, and address you know addressing audiences in Europe uh, through promotion, um, and so you know I'm looking forward to hearing those papers because I really think it's it's something that we just don't know enough about. Um, uh, with in my own research, uh, it's it's mostly concerned with uh, British films and Scottish films that are promoted in the United States, and this is kind of always been the the bane not necessarily of british filmmakers but of british film critics that say you know that uh, kind of look down on having to sell yourself to america and because you know this kind of disdain that is is already there in film studies with films having to be sold period you know if only they didn't if only we could you know go watch look at them in a museum um combined with the kind of cultural politics of the u.s being such a big superpower and everyone else in the world having to kind of go along with that. Um, and the resentment uh, that greets uh, effort, you know, marketing campaigns for British films in America is one that I, th I still think is ultimately unproductive. Um, it, you know, like uh, when you talk about 
uh, British films that don't get a big enough budget. Uh, you know, they it's usually blamed on things like Four Weddings and a Funeral or Howard's End that that were easy to market in the United States and making complex British films harder to get made. And it's it's all be down to Merchant Ivory, you know, for for kind of sticking us in it. And uh, you know, and I think that's the, does a disservice to the discipline ultimately. Um, so I my own research is kind of built around comparing. Uh, how things are marketed in the UK and, and marketed in and uh, in the US and and ultimately uh, I really don't think there's a big difference for British films anyway uh, you know and and it's kind of a frightening mirror to hold up to British film critics because it makes them you know they have to admit that it is part of that because British films have become more like American films mm-hmm. um, well th- it's uh, a, a really kind of a, a contentious statement really because uh, there are British films that are like American films but uh, you know, when you look at the history of British cinema, um, that goes back to the beginnings. That uh, there have been kind of distinct kinds of British filmmaking um, that have centered around things like uh, costume drama and viewing the past that are still around today that were from the beginning. So, in that way, there not a lot has changed. Uh, there have been films, uh, British-made films, that follow Hollywood standards, but. Uh, Hollywood standards have become world standards. It's no longer just uh, one model you're imitating. It's it's everyone in the world makes films that way. So um, when you're talking about British films becoming more American, I would I would ask you which films you meant specifically because uh, there's a whole school of thought that says uh, British films are becoming more European and suffering at the box office because of it, or you know that they're trying to imitate America too much and failing horribly, and that's why they're failing at the box office. And uh, but this is how British cinema is written: is that it's always a study of failure, which uh, is is kind of indicative of the British outlook on things, isn't it? <laughs> Are there big differences between European promotion and American promotion? And the other, the I suppose the other classic big example would be Bollywood. It's really interesting to talk about Bollywood because it's kind of a growing part of uh, the British uh, film industry and, and one that people don't talk about a great deal. And uh, But, uh, I, you know, this is an, an area which is a small part of my research, and I hope to learn more about. Uh, but I think it is a fascinating crossover into the British market that, uh, you know, we have a tremendous diasporic audience in Britain uh, that is being addressed by these products. But so in a way, they're, they're NRI films. They're aimed at non-resident Indians or people from the subcontinent um, originally whose, whose family ethnicity lies in the subcontinent, I should say. But at the same time, uh, there's also this thing uh, known as Bollyphilia, which I guess I'm a part of, but of, you know, people who have no connection to the subcontinent at all who go to Bollywood films at the cinema and, and find it to be a very interesting experience and, uh, you know, some very interesting films. Uh, but this is kind of an emerging thing that's going on as we speak, so I think the scholarship is going to have to catch up with it, and uh, I look forward to when it does, really. Um, the marketing in Europe, I think, is uh, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that that uh, are out there about it. Um, you know, in Britain and in the U.S., we like to think uh, that the Europeans are smarter than us, that they they appreciate films on a deeper level than we do. And um, you know, what that overlooks is that uh, Hollywood is consistently more popular there than indigenous product. You know, and and it's not as if uh, you know they're pitching. Uh, the latest, you know, Snakes on the Plane wasn't, you know, brought out as <laughs> you know, appealing to European art cinema sensibilities. So I think uh, 
there is a gap there in the study you know, between our perception and what seems to be the reality on the ground. Uh, mm. For my part, I can say that British uh, within British cinema, there's always this kind of perception because uh, one of the the focuses of my research is on uh, government's role in all of this. And within kind of funding bodies, you always hear um, when a film is kind of art cinema in its design, you, there's this kind of thought uh, expressed in the documents that this will be big in Europe, uh, you know, which seems to me too pat, you know, that it's, it's not as if you bring out a film with, uh, you know, like alienated characters, little dialogue, <laughs> experimental editing that automatically audiences in France will flock to it. Uh, um, but there is, it is a different film culture. So, um, there, there is work there to be done. Um, in the U S you know, it's just the opposite. Uh, the perception in the UK is that they're all very dumb. Like throw them, throw a lot of spectacle into your trailer, you know, a lot of flashy images and explosions and, uh, you know, Ewan McGregor or something and you, you will have a hit or Hugh Grant, or, you know, and, and, um, just as I think there's, uh, that assumption, you know, one assumption about, European audiences. I think there's an assumption about American audiences in marketing, and both of which are extreme exaggerations, and both of which need to be kind of qualified. And and uh, for my part, uh, the British films that I've looked at that have been promoted in the U.S. are almost always in this kind of middle ground between uh, you know spectacular images and artistic content. Uh, local hero, in addition to having the trailer with, um, you know, a lot of twee uh, Scottish folk uh, spouting wisdom and such, also talked about artistic merit and Bill Forsyth's vision and, and such. So so there is a kind of art cinema discourse that surrounds a lot of British cinema. But is there a problem where there's a disconnect, where the film is pitched in one way, but then when people actually turn up to see the film, it's it's a different kettle of fish? Doesn't that damage the film? Doesn't that actually, you know, as a commercial entity, mm-hmm. doesn't that create a, a problem? Um, I don't think so, uh, the perception, um, when you read about uh, high concept and marketing and, and these things, uh, the idea behind high concept isn't to build a year-long marketing campaign that'll see the film run in cinemas forever. Uh, the idea is more to get it open, to get audiences there for that first week. Um, and now we, we live in a climate now where there's an absolute fetish for box opening box office figures. So, you know, people open IMDb, you know, the, a Monday morning to see what was number one at the box office. And uh, that will often make or break a film, uh, you know, whether or not it did well in its opening weekend. So um, in that case, uh, you know, high concept or, you know, opening the film did well if, you know, it comes out with a big box office. But after that, um, after those initial two or three weeks, um, what keeps a movie going is no longer high concept. It's word of mouth. Um, so you open it some way, and if uh, you know it's you know in a way high concept can sabotage itself. You know if it turns out to just be what the tagline said, people say, oh yeah, you know, like fairly straightforward. But if there's something more to it, that's when a movie kind of gets legs and keeps going. You know, and and will kind of have talking points around it and won't need a big advertising budget anymore. Um, so. Um, the the Hollywood model is to kind of put all the money into the opening weekend, uh, hope something sticks. If it doesn't, you at least made a lot of money that first week, and you can do kind of DVD sales and rentals uh, once it comes out uh, in other platforms. But smaller films kind of depend on word of mouth almost. You you won't get a giant opening. You kind of need people to be talking about it for it to have legs. So something like Howard Zen ran for... 40 or 50 weeks, you know, in, in cinemas because people kept talking about it. Whereas 
the bigger box office films that year ran for about 15 weeks, <laughs> you know, were just more concentrated. So. I mean, Howard's End's an interesting example there of a film that managed to, you know, exist in world of mouth uh, in a time long before we had the kind of modern communications networks that we have today. But um, those modern communications networks have, have revolutionised the way that films are marketed. How, is, how has the internet, the mobile phone, changed the way that we approach a film now? Well, it, it, this again is something that's changing right before our eyes. So, uh, and uh, we—it's the the focus of one of the panels at the conference will be exclusively uh, kind of looking at new technologies and uh, and how it's changing things. So, in a way, the jury's still out. Uh, um, for my part, I would say something to something to look at are things uh, something like snakes on a plane, um, which. Uh, should have been a flop, ended up being a flop, but had this kind of life because of the internet, uh, because people heard about the, the high concept and were openly ridiculing it on YouTube <laughs> and and throughout various forums on on uh, on the internet. And it made a, a big space, you know, for the film. It made word of mouth quite uh, large. Unfortunately, the film only did what was in the word of mouth, and that's why I think it, you know, it failed. But um, the way the internet has kind of revived um, television programs uh, that have would have died out otherwise. You know, pilots uh, for shows that never were shown on broadcast television are shown on YouTube and suddenly re-picked up by distributors. So, so I think there's something there, and if it's being done with um, with smaller with uh, television programs, I think there's only a matter of time before we see some director putting his short films on YouTube with the idea that some, you know, like word of mouth will build for me and, you know, I'll at least be able to leverage some kind of small film deal, you know? So, um, I would guess that, uh, you know, filmmakers being intelligent, you know, resourceful people, this, uh, you know, this is a, a gold mine for them, YouTube. Uh, and um, does the opportunity provided by the internet actually mean that we have an opportunity here where directors are going to take more direct interest mm-hmm. in the promotional materials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, I believe so. Um, and uh, they'd be fools not to, really. And um, the film industry worldwide is is built so that the more resor- you know, the more dedicated, resourceful, creative thinkers will ultimately the cream will rise to the top. So clever filmmakers have always been in charge of their own promotion. Hitchcock himself was a better self-promoter than he was a director of arguably, you know, and, and his reputation has only benefited from that, you know, um, and, uh, the same with, uh, someone like Orson Welles, although Citizen Kane wasn't a tremendous success, you know, he's kept himself, uh, you know, his legacy is, you know, one of, you know, great esteem partially because he was so good at promoting himself. Um, and, you know, so, just as kind of publicity stunts were the thing to do in the 50s uh, to do things like locking people out of the cinemas before Psycho, I think what you'll see now is that, uh, you know, like something like the Blair Witch Project, where the filmmakers set up a fake website about this being a real story, and that built word of mouth and made for one of the most profitable films uh, in the history of filmmaking. Uh, um, And you know that will, I think, is be kind of set the bar in a new way for filmmakers to use the internet to their own advantage. Um, so I, I think, you know, the the good ones will kind of realize these potentials. Uh, so the mechanisms that have worked um, very well for the film industry are now appearing mm-hmm. in other media channels, uh, particularly thinking about digital media, uh, computer gaming, 
where it's often been like you know it's often been said that computer games are becoming more like feature films mm-hmm. um, it's noticeable over the last sort of couple of years that the marketing materials for computer games are also becoming much more <laughs> like marketing materials for film um, there's a big crossover there isn't there yes and uh, and in addition to that I'd say uh, you know look at all the adaptations of video games that are coming out in cinemas now it used Resident. to be the other way around <laughs> yeah. where you, you kind of have the game of the, the film and now we're having the film of the game yes and now we have Resident Evil and uh, and uh, soon we're going to have Halo and, and such you know the, it is a, another um, exciting kind of branch of you know film and media studies you know so audiences now are getting more uh, you know the, the kind of 18 to 25 year old audience is more cinema literate more visually literate than it's ever been and this influences the way you sell almost everything to them you know uh, you know, or th- you know the way almost all of our culture is kind of mediated is through things like uh, the godfather or star wars so you know and uh, it was only a matter of time before gaming you know followed that suit and vice versa that gaming has become such a part of people's lives that invariably other media kind of have to change tact in a way um you know it's it'll be interesting to see where this goes because uh there are computer games out now on you know the big blockbusters, but there are also on some very odd films uh, like Tarkovsky films are being made into video games, uh, which is it's just the the weirdest thing you'd think. Uh, but Stalker does lend itself to a video game, you know, and uh, now even television programs like Little Britain, I just saw a PlayStation game has come out, <laughs> you know. So so uh, yeah, it's, it'd be interesting to see more research on that because I'm of the opinion I don't think they actually sell very many video game units for that but it helps to promote the film you know in some ways and since sony owns a a movie studio a television production wing and uh you know a video gaming council you know you can't just say it's to sell video games you know the video games might be to sell the films you never really can no one really has has explored it yet and you know it needs to be studied i think Uh, chris thank you very much okay thank you